that we pray every Sunday and different uh, prayers, obviously different words, but same intent. Sometimes I pray it, most of the time I pray it. I printed a prayer of illumination in the bulletins this morning. I have this great sense of your need to be involved in all these things and to help you and to give you something to take home so that you can throughout the course of the week use in your own devotional life as you come before the scriptures. It's the job, the work of the Holy Spirit to illuminate, that is to bring to light that which is true of Christ. He said that he's come to glorify the Lord Jesus. He's the one who worked in the authors of scripture in order to breathe out that which God intended to be written. Uh, and, And so we pray a prayer of illumination each time we open the scripture. This particular prayer is really based on a passage of scripture you might recognize from 1 Timothy, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy in chapter 3. Let's pray it together. Our Father in heaven, we know that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Thus we pray, teach us, reprove us, correct us, train us in righteousness, make us competent and equipped for every good work. In Jesus' name, amen. That's a lofty prayer. I trust you meant it as you prayed. Because we're asking God to make us wise, to teach us of his things, to reprove and correct us. That is where we're wrong, to let us know that and to tell us how we're to live, to train us, therefore, in righteousness. We realize that we're not competent in ourselves. We need him to make us competent for all to which he calls us. Turn, please, to Colossians in chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. I want to read verses 1 through 17. I know we've been here for a month or so. We'll stay for another month or so. Uh, but I want to read again the same section and, um, and then pick just a few points from it. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. Hear the word of God. If then you've been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then, you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised. Barbarians get the enslaved free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I want, if God will help me, simply to take up these verses and really not even complete them, just give you kind of an overview today. These verses beginning with verse 12 where Paul writes, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So let me set this up. Summertime is a time when people are in and out. And so it's difficult sometimes to maintain the continuity. Uh, uh, And so let me just kind of catch us all up. Remember, Paul is writing about these things, about how we're to live, uh, because he ended the second chapter with uh, this this point. He said that the the teaching that was going on in Colossae at the time uh, was of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. When he speaks of the indulgence of the flesh, he's speaking of the flesh, which isn't this stuff around our bodies, but it's, it's that inclination in us which is given to sin. And so this flesh, which is part of us, which is really in a very real sense who we are, he's saying, uh, I want to stop your indulging of it because it's this sinful inclination. So he's saying, I want, you to st- I want to stop you from sinning. So what I want you to do, I want you to be holy, I want you to stop you from sinning. So what's of value in enabling you, what's of value in enabling us to do that, to stop indulging the flesh? Now, we need to understand, of course, the source of that flesh comes from being united to Adam because of his sin and in his sin. You remember in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned, created in, in holiness and righteousness, and, and yet were tempted by Satan and thus followed after him and rebelled against God. Sin entered at that point into the human race and all of its consequences. And every human being since then has been united to Adam and thus receiving the effects of his sin, which is uh, being under the penalty of that sin, the curse of that sin, being condemned, if you will, because of it, before God. Being corrupt in, in, our, in our person, in our very nature, having this bent to sin, and even more than that, being under the rule and reign of that sin, being under its dominion, where we really can't not sin in that state of being united to Adam. We recognize in some sense in our culture uh, this sin just recently as the president and, and Professor Gates and Officer Crowley met and talked about that whole incident. The president said, we're all uh, imperfect men. And that's sort of our euphemism for this notion of sin and flesh that we call ourselves imperfect. And it's true. We are certainly imperfect, but, but the source of that comes from this rebellion against God. And what isn't recognized by our culture is that there's no cure for that in and of ourselves. We don't cure that by trying not to be that. We don't cure that by self-denial. We don't cure that by making a list of rules which we can as a culture sort of follow together. And then when we slip from that kind of, kind of admit our our imperfection and then get on with life. It's bigger than that because it entails God and it's against him and it's rebellion against him. He created us in his image to glorify him. The sin causes that image in us of him to be broken. And so we find ourselves 
than living under his wrath. That's this sense of flesh. And so Paul says, what's going to help us stop indulging it? And, and, and rather than, than talking about some more rules, he speaks of a whole new orientation to life. You notice in the passage that I read, he speaks about an old self and a new self. He's speaking of this old self, that which is united to, to Adam, and thus finding itself under the penalty and power of sin. The new self, the difference, what makes it new, is this whole orientation to sin, this relatedness to sin. Because in this new self, we're united to Jesus, and all that he did is extended to us so that rather than being under the penalty and power of sin we're now under the forgiveness that comes thus no longer under sin's penalty and we're no longer under its dominion or its power we're free Charles Wesley one of the great lines of ever written said he captured about four volumes of theology in one line He breaks the power of canceled sin. Sin's canceled. Penalty has been paid. And in the paying of the penalty, its power is destroyed. It's broken. That's what Jesus did, you see, on the cross. We mustn't ever forget that. He broke the power of canceled sin. So we have this new self united to Jesus. And so he says, that's where it must begin. Because Christianity isn't simply about being good. It isn't just being better than everybody else. It isn't trying simply to live a good life and therefore you're Christians. I can't tell you how many times people have come to me with the notion that Christians are good people and everybody else isn't. The truth of the matter is we're all sinners. We're all the same in that regard. Now, it doesn't mean that we aren't to be good, but, but there's this, this way of becoming good. And it isn't by our own merit, it's because of the work of Christ. It's his goodness. And so this new self, Paul says, something very significant about it, it's being renewed in the image of its creator. It's being renewed in the image of its creator. Now, if you go back to Genesis when, when Adam was created, he was made, he and Eve, in the image of God. Meaning that they were to glorify God. Meaning they were to reflect him. That's what it means to be made in the image of another. If you look in the mirror, you see your image. And uh, it's your glory. <laughs> I always don't like that. But that's what it is. <laughs> see my glory. And uh, it's very revealing. And so we're to be in the image of God. We're to reveal his glory and his love. And we're to love as he loved. That's why when Jesus summed the commandments, he said, there's two. The first is the greatest. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. What do they have in common? Love. Because God loves, that's who he is. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Spirit, the Spirit loves the Son and the Father, and all of that. Within God, there is love, and so we're to reflect all of that in the context, you see, of our lives. And so, as Paul lays this out, he says, I want you to realize that 
But you're to live a particular way. You're to stop indulging in the flesh. But the only way you can do that is if the power of the flesh has been broken and the only one who can break it is Jesus. And thus the only way for you to stop indulging to the flesh is to seek him, to trust him, to receive from him that which he did on the cross which broke the power of canceled sin. And then he lays out for them that this is for everybody. Notice again in verse 11. This is all a review, by the way. So you should be saying, oh, come on, get on with it, Bill. Um, but but this, is, this is all in verse 11. He says, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. He says, we're all the same at this point. There isn't Jew and Greek. That isn't the distinction. The distinction is new self, old self. The distinction is in Christ or in Adam. It isn't about Jew or Greek. It once was only to the degree that God had chosen to work through Israel in a particular way. But that that even then still wasn't the point. There was a bigger point. It isn't about about even your religious upbringing, uh, circumcised or uncircumcised, what what religious sort of... um, 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 rituals you've gone through and all of that second service will baptize um, Becky and Reed Brown's little one and most of you know the Becky is Becky Demarest but uh, we'll baptize Austin James Brown and I won't say anything about him feeling good <laughs> but his baptism will be of no help to him Unless he believes. We trust it will be of help to him to bring him to faith as he's taught about it. And he's taught about its meaning. But in terms of one day standing before God, if he simply says, well, I was baptized when I was a couple of months old, that will hold no bearing other than it will lead more to his destruction, his, his judgment, if he does not believe. It's all about being in Christ. That's the point. It isn't whether you were circumcised or uncircumcised even in that day, by that day. The point was, are you in the new self or the old self? Even in the old covenant, circumcision didn't come for anything without faith, you see. Barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, it doesn't matter your social standing. Whether you're a barbarian or a Scythian, the Scythians were barbarians who were slaves. I mean, the barbarians told Scythian jokes, you know what I mean? They they were lower even than your run-of-the-mill barbarian. Um, Or or free, it didn't matter, you see. Um, It doesn't matter your social standing. But it's all about Christ, you see. That's the very point of it. If you're going to stop indulging the flesh then it's, it's, it's about Christ and seeking him and knowing him and having his work in you and you being united to him. So, all of that, you see. And then Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He says, I want to tell you now who you are. You're chosen by God. You did not initiate this relationship. You're holy, that is. God has done something to set you apart for his blessing and made you to be holy in his sight. You're loved by God. And you see, the combination of those three words together strikes us in a number of ways. Number one, all of these words were used of ancient Israel. 
And so every Gentile who's hearing these words are saying, okay, I'm connected to that. That story, that history of the old covenant is my story too. I'm, I'm connected to that. He chose them. He chose me. They, he made them to be, was making them to be a holy nation. I am holy. He loved them. He loves me. And so, so I'm connected to all of that. In that sense, all believers are connected to all believing ancient Israel through Abraham, who is the father of our faith, if you will, in that sense. That may have just blown you out of the water, but just relax. Write it down. Think about it for 10 years. But all of these words are spoken of Jesus as well. He, the chosen one of God, not Harry Potter, right? Jesus, the chosen one, the holy one of God. The one of whom God said, this is my son whom I love. And he says it of us. You see, what that's to do for us, even as we're thinking about not indulging the flesh, he says, this is, this is how dramatic all of this is. This is no small thing. This is the God of the universe, almighty God, who knows you, and he's chosen you to be his, which at its least should humble each one of us to realize that we couldn't have chosen him lest he chose us first. And what a horrible thing to think that I've been rebellious in my life against God and in all his glory and all his goodness and all his wisdom and all his power. I simply rejected all of that and ran from him and I needed him to rescue me. That should humble us completely. There's no arrogance in this. God is saying, listen, given your situation, given your rebellion, given your running from me, given your deadness, I had to come to you and give you life before you could even respond to me. It's all of me. Don't thank yourself. Don't worship yourself. Don't pat yourself on the back. Just be buzzed by the fact that God has chosen you. And allow that to humble you to realize that you are completely lost. I'm completely lost without his work. I've made you holy. He said, you weren't holy. But I've set you apart holy. I've made you distinct and different holy. So that you could receive this blessing. Allow that to humble you. And he says, I loved you. And we think, wow. Why would he love me? He said, no, I have. And you see, these, these words not only connect us to all of what God is doing throughout history, through ancient Israel and beyond, not only connect us to Jesus, but, 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 but humble us and give us a great sense of security. He says, now this is how I want you to live. You can really live in the midst of this. Because you're mine, and I've made you to be mine, so you can't escape. I've made you to be mine. And live in the security of that and live in the gratefulness of that, of all that he's done. And so now he begins to lay out these what we could call character traits. And I'm just going to buzz through them this morning to set something up. We'll come back, I think, to them. He says, so put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness, love. That's this list here. Now what do we... What do we see 
about these. Remember, Paul has no expectations that we can do these on our own. No expectations that these are natural qualities. Now, we see them in all people at various times. We see something like compassion, something like kindness, something like humility, something like meekness, something like patience, something like forbearance, something like forgiveness, something like love in the course of human beings. Because we're, we're the, the image of God in us, while broken, isn't completely destroyed. We still see it. The problem is all of those uh, attributes, all of those characteristics are perverted in one way or another because they're all infused with our own selfishness and pride, which means that we don't operate in them purely and perfectly. So Paul doesn't have any, any sense that these things will, will, are natural to us. These all come as part of this renewing grace, being renewed in the image of Christ. Uh, Paul writes to the church in Galatia and he says this to them. He says, he says I'm struggling. I feel the pain as, as even a, a mother in childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Because the very point of these is that these all reflect the Lord Jesus. In fact, in another place in Romans, in chapter 13, Paul kind of cuts through all of this by simply saying this. This is Romans 13, verse 14. Ah, Let me go to verse 13. He says, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, okay, whatever is true of Jesus, which is all these characteristics. He says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Paul Paul's saying, listen, the way that we stop the indulgence of the flesh is that we put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So being a follower of Jesus isn't simply a negative thing, like I don't do all of these things. Now he's given us all the don't lists already. Verse 5, he says, we actually put these things to death, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And then he says in verse 8, we're to put away anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk and not to lie. But it isn't simply a matter of taking off and saying, I don't do these things. It's also this sense of this is who I am, this is the disposition of my heart, thus these are the kinds of things that I do because I'm a follower of Jesus. It isn't about simply emptying, it's about filling. It isn't just simply about taking off, it's about putting on. It isn't just about not doing, it's about being and doing, you see. I think of that story that Jesus told about the demon you might remember that was sort of out and about. He had left his home and, and was just sort of out in the, in the, in the Netherlands, if you will, or whatever that means in the context of demon life. And uh, Jesus said, however, that he ended up going back to his former place of residence. Why? Because it had only been swept out, but it was still empty. And so the demon came back with seven more. And there's this sense of it isn't just simply taking off, it's also putting on. Zacchaeus, for instance, was a thief. And he stopped thieving, stopped stealing, but started giving. And so you see, he took theft off and all of that, but he put on generosity, put on giving, put on graciousness and all of that. And so we're to do that. We know that if we're going to break any addiction, for instance, in our lives, and while breaking addictions... 
such is a complicated thing. We know it isn't simply a matter of stopping, but it's also a matter of starting. For those with pornography addictions, it isn't just a matter of, of turning off the computer or getting rid of it or turning off the television or getting rid of it or stopping subscriptions to magazines and getting rid of them. And it isn't just that. It is that, putting all that aside. But it's also then living a life of purity and all that's attached to that. It isn't simply about giving up alcohol, alcohol or drugs for the alcoholic and the drug addicted, but it's also putting on that which is consistent with being a follower of Christ and purity and holiness and all of that. And so Paul is saying it isn't just about taking these things off, it's also about putting these things on. And basically we're putting on Christ. He's being formed in us. And so as certain situations arise, we're to see within our lives compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and forbearance and forgiveness, love really, come up in us. And that isn't necessarily an easy thing. It's a disciplined thing. But it's a thing that we must be aware of and we must realize that this is the very course of our lives, to live like this. In fact, we could say, this is life. Well, that's very different than how I would define life. When, when, when I think about life, I think about either a beach or a mountain and being relatively alone <laughs> with, with a box beside me filled with books, right? That's life. That's living. Or I think of a baseball field where I'm there with great seats and nobody else showed up around me. Uh, and I'm there, right? Uh, in the good seats. And that's, that's life. But that isn't life. We think about life as having an evening off. That's not life. Real life, you see, is lived having put on Christ. His compassion. His kindness. His humility. His meekness. His patience. His forbearance. His forgiving. His love. That's real life when we're renewed to his, into his image, if you will. And you'll notice about these, just a general observation. I don't see any, what I would call, I don't know what else to call this, been struggling to figure out what to call this. I don't see any self-guarding here in any of these words. By that I mean, I don't see any self-attention. All of these words are outward pushing. All of these words are outward seeing. All of these words require self-sacrifice and self-giving, not self-protecting. Now, please, I understand that we need to eat and we need to rest and take care of ourselves and all of that, right? So that's a given in this, whatever that means. It normally doesn't mean the kind of indulgence I give myself. But it means something. I should sleep and eat and do all those kinds of things we need to take care of ourselves and exercise and so forth and so on. And have healthy relationships and blah, blah, blah. You fill in the gap. But when it comes to this, it's, it's so assumed that we're going to do that because that's not the issue. It isn't that generally we take care of ourselves too well. It's that we forget about others in the midst of that. And so in the midst of this, what we see are these words. Now, again, just very briefly, they all speak to us of Jesus. This word compassion, it, it, it means that it's an inner, there's an inner disposition that sees the needs of others, sees the needs of others, because you're one of them and you know 
real life and you know what people go through so you see the needs of others and you're moved by those needs to action. That's a sense of compassion. So true is this of Jesus. So often is his compassion, or you could translate this mercy, uh, revealed in the Gospels. And one New Testament scholar wrote a book about Jesus, and he used this title, and he had compassion. Because you read through the scripture, you'll find it. Go, go, go read the Gospels this week and underline compassion, mercy, and pity, and sympathy, those kinds of words. And you'll see it's very true of Jesus. And, and, and in fact, it moved him to do all kinds of things. The scripture said that he saw the people like, as they were like sheep without a shepherd. He knew them. And he saw their need. And it said it moved him to teach them. He were people who didn't know anything about God. And he saw their condition. Thus it moved him to teach them. It moved him to heal them. Lepers would come to Jesus and say, Son of David, have mercy upon us. Blind men would come to to Jesus and say, "Uh, Son of David, have mercy upon us. Uh, Widows would come to Jesus and say, Have mercy upon me. My son has just died. Those who are sick would come to Jesus and say, have mercy upon me or have mercy, have compassion. And the scripture said that he was moved and he healed them. He saw a group of people one day who were indeed like sheep without a shepherd. He told his disciples, pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out his workers into this harvest. They need, so beseech God that he will send. And implied in all of that, especially with those to whom he was speaking, is you are to go. This is your field. Go. Reap this. Harvest. Go. It's interesting. We all know the occasions of Jesus when he fed the 5,000. Another occasion when he fed the 4,000. Obviously there were thousands more than that. But they just counted men in those days. And so that's what the number that were given. These people were hungry and Jesus was moved with compassion. But what, what, pre, what the, the prerequisite or the, 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 the context of that particular incident in the life of Jesus was that he was tired and hungry. He had been teaching, he had been healing and all of that. And so the scripture says that he got in a boat to go to a desolate place where he could rest. But when he got there, he realized that all the people had followed him. And so what did he do? Well, what I would have done is I would have pulled my shades, you know, and ordered in room service. But it said, no, no, he went out to greet them. And he began to teach them. And he healed more. And then he saw that they were hungry. And then he fed them. All because he was moved with compassion. That's compassion. And that's what we're called to do and to be. To be like that. And he could do and be, like, be that because he had empathy for us. Hebrews um, chapter 2 speaks of Jesus like this. Verse 17. It says, Therefore, he that is Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. He had, to see, he had to become like us to enter into our need. And thus he became our merciful, compassionate high priest. And you see, we're to empathize with each other. We don't have to enter into anything because we're all human beings. We weren't God and now have to become the God-man. We should know this, be sensitive, and respond, react. And this compassion moves to kindness that is it's an inner disposition kindness is to to seek the well-being of another and it's expressed in actions not random acts of kindness but compassionate feeling acts of kindness. there's no random if it's random it isn't kind Just, when you see those bumper stickers 
carry around with you a black magic marker and just go, don't do that. <laughs> but at least in your mind, you know, pull it off. It's compassionate acts of kindness, words spoken that are kind, deeds done that are kind. And all this comes from a person who, like Jesus, is humble. We know about the humility of Jesus. It's amazing. He had to make himself humble. He had to humble himself because he's God. And so in the context of the incarnation, he humbled himself. As I think I mentioned last Sunday, at least in one of the services, that, that the, the ancient theologians refer to uh, the incarnation of Jesus as the humiliation of the Son of Man, the humbling of the Son of Man. That he comes like us. The scripture says that though he was in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Emptying himself, taking the very form of a servant so that he could be obedient, even obedient unto death. That's this humility, the humbling of Jesus. The word humble means to see yourself as lowly. That's so un-American. It's, it, it is even hard to even think about. Lowly, we're taught to exalt and to be higher than everyone else. But no, this sense of humility to be low. And for a human being, all that means is that you see yourself as you really are. We don't have to make ourselves humble. We simply see ourselves as who we are in the very presence of God. Our problem is generally we try to evaluate ourselves according to one another. And we can always find somebody who's lower than we are. But the point is that we see ourselves in the very presence of God. And we see ourselves utterly dependent upon him. And those words echo back, chosen, holy, loved. And we realize it took that initiation of God because I didn't pursue him. He pursued me. I didn't come to him. He came to me. And it humbles us. That is, it shows us who we are. And so no one is above another in that sense. And then meekness is simply living that out in the context of other people. I've said often, once I admit that the best I can do is to deserve hell, it's really hard for me to be too uppity. Right? And that's one of the things that we do when we come and make an affirmation of faith together. It's, it's this verbalization that I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. We believe in Him because we need Him. We believe in Him because it's true. We believe in Him so that He forgives our sin and is our Savior because we need that salvation, that rescue that comes from Him. And we admit that all together. One of the reasons that we do a a, a verbal, unison confession of sin is so that we all say these words together. And I say to you, you say to me, I get it, I've sinned. I haven't loved God as I ought. I haven't loved you like I should. And it's a recognition of all that. And that's... Then living that out, meekness that says that no one is below me, and thus I'm here to serve all. Jesus, in his meekness, said that you can find rest for, his soul, for your soul in him because he's approachable. You can come to the very Son of God. How can that be that we can come in the very presence of God? Only by way of coming to this one who will not reject us because he loves us. This one who has died for us because he loves us. This one who receives us because he loves us. This one who is meek and does not judge us but receives us unto himself. 
A sense of patience then. A compassionate one, a humble one, can be patient with another, can forbear, can hold on. Why? Because we don't put ourselves above another. And we realize that whatever annoying thing, whatever persecuting thing, whatever difficult thing a person is putting us through, we could be doing that as well. And be patient with them. And forgiving just as God has forgiven us in Christ Jesus. We'll come back to all those. But even as we come now to this table, we realize that these are true of Christ. We see his compassion. In fact, as Mary was composing her thoughts after she found that she was with child, as Zechariah, Elizabeth's, husband was composing his thoughts after he realized that his wife was with child by him as one who would be John the Baptist as they reflected on all of this together they said this coming of Jesus was the compassion of God the mercy of God he saw us in our misery and he had to act so he sent his son to die for us his kindness to help us we see the very humility of Jesus in coming we see his meekness in being approachable and serving us we know God's patience with us all because of Jesus how he bears with us I don't know about you but there's some nights before I go to bed I say God just thanks for hanging in there with me today I know I caused you trouble (laughs) I know that it was just a bad day for the both of us And I'm really sorry. And how he bears with us. And then to say, thank you for forgiving my sins. I realize where I've missed it. I realize where I've intentionally missed it. I knew when I was missing it, I was missing it. And it felt so good to miss it at the moment. And I'm sorry. And yet still he forgives us. And we're to be like that. In the lives of others. Oh, I can't atone for your sins. You can't atone for mine. But we're to treat one another like that. We're to be moved with compassion. We're to be people who are kind to one another in the thoughts that we think about each other. In the words that we say to each other. Think about your relationships with your husband, your wife, your children your friends, others in the church, the people you work with, go to school with, people you don't know where to be like this towards them, where to have this sense of empathy, sympathy, to love them like this. We're to be humble, not arrogant and proud. We're to be meek before one another, not put on airs. And to be patient, bear with each other. However annoying we may be, however frustrating we may be to each other, we're to bear with each other in order to forgive. Let me ask you to bow just very quickly. Uh, Think about your life in relation to Christ. 
spend a moment thinking about your own heart of compassion, your own heart of kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness, love. Think about that. Lay that out before God. Think about how perfect Jesus is in every one of these characteristics. Father in heaven, I pray for me and for us. I realize I know that to which we have been called. And we know these virtues, these characteristics, these graces can only be wrought in us by work of the Spirit, by the very indwelling of our Lord Jesus who's being formed in us. I give you thanks that our Lord Jesus is perfect in every one of these. Thus give us hope that as we're renewed in his image by his help, that we too can manifest these characteristics in increasing measure. Be with us even as we put off that which is consistent with the old self and enable us to put on that which is true of the new self. that we may put on Christ. And Father, now even around this table, we pray that you would set apart this bread and this juice in such a way that would remind us of Jesus, uh, give us great confidence in him, and let us know that he's right here, so close to us, as close to us as bread and juice is, as even it goes into our bodies. So set this apart now, Father, to enable us to fellowship with Jesus. It's bread and juice, is bread and juice. That's all it will ever be. But by your working, will enable us to fellowship with Christ, even as he's here with us. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.